Welcome to Everyday Theology, a podcast designed to equip and encourage the local church as we follow Jesus together. I'm Pastor Josh, the lead pastor of Vertical Church, and I'm here today with my partner in crime and the most beloved bishop mm, in yes. the, our local church, Joseph Hall. I, this is the second episode we recorded. You call me Joseph both times, which is more than you have your, ever called it's me. It's your that. real name. Your mom would <laughs> My very mom much is appreciate it. Beaming as as we sit here. I yeah. thought she was going to pop me in the mouth the first time I called you Joe in her presence. My dad still just says, "Who's that?" When any, when anyone says Joe, so yeah. I didn't want to call you by your middle name because mm-hmm. I didn't want you to feel like you know bring back some PTSD from when you got in trouble as a child. But uh, yeah, that, you're right. It would have. So thank you for that. Yeah. And look, hey, today we're together and we're going to be talking about Reformed theology. And uh, people have been asking that they want to know, right, is vertical Reformed? And so that's kind of a big question uh, that we're going to be kind of trying to unpack in this episode. Before we kind of try and answer that question directly, why do you think this is such a common question that, that we tend to get? I hope it's a common question because people care. Right. And I think that's mostly the case. People want to know uh, what we believe because they care about what we believe. They care about what they believe. And I think that's a good thing. Even if we disagree, I think it makes sense for you to care about these things. Like, why do you believe? What do you believe? What are you basing that on? Those are the right questions to be asking, even if we come down on different places. For sure. And I think about it uh, contextually, like there. There has been, at least in like sort of our SBC circles, which is the, the tribe that we tend to associate with and people that we tend to roll with most most often, a massive resurgence of reform theology in the last twenty years. I know some even coined you know phrases to describe the movement that seems sure. to be, and it's led by not in sort of any formal fashion, but I think it's being driven by a lot of key figures that mm-hmm. uh, people respect and look up to like your pipers and your kellers and your chandlers and all those guys and and I think a lot of people have been exposed to reform theology through a lot of their their ministries and they're like man I I I believe that and so there some people I think are asking the question out of a an alignment question right so I want to know what you believe because I want to know do I align with this church and is right. this going to be a good fit for me? Uh, and then there's others less frequently, but maybe ask because they're looking for a fight, right? Like right. <laughs> I vehemently disagree right? and uh, I don't want to be a part of this and I might want to argue about it uh, if you give me the space for it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what do we believe? What is our answer to that question? Are we a reformed church? Well, I'm going to give you the, the short answer first and then we'll give you the longer one. The short answer is Yes. And no. <laughs> and a lot of this really hinges on what they mean uh, by reformed and like the devils and the definitions here. Mm-hmm. And and so um, that that's what I think really makes this this complicated. Right. Um, right. Because the word and you look at it historically, the, the way that people have used the word has has definitely morphed and changed over over the years. Um, I'm by no means a a historian, but at least initially, I think reformed was by and large, the sort of self description of those who saw themselves as sort of coming out of the Protestant reformation. They Mm -hmm. were Protestant. That's, it was just synonymous for, are you, are you in agreement with Luther on this whole justification by faith deal? Uh, and do you stand against some of the things that the Catholic church was teaching? Uh, would you also hammer this to the door of the church? (laughs) Are you on the team, man? Or, or are you not? Right. Um, and so I think in the earliest days of the Reformation, which is really, I think, should be stated in you know, a recovery of what they thought was the apostolic 
teaching, not like something new. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's what that meant. Uh, and then as Protestantism really kind of you know took off, it became something different. It became a way of describing: Do you are you Lutheran and do you affirm the Lutheran confessions and um, or or are you do you hold to the Reformed confessions? Um, right. And so Reformed actually became something actually different from the guy who kind of started this whole thing. Um, and so that's what it, you know for a time there it was like: Are you you know, when someone was asking the question, they're asking, are you Lutheran or are you the ref- a Reformed version of, of Protestant? And, and neither one of those is really how people talk about this word uh, today. So it's yeah, evolved. not so much. It's evolved yeah. quite a bit. And the not way. so much anymore. And even today, like the range of usage mm-hmm. is what in, is what makes us difficult to answer because you talk to some people and they mean one thing by it um, and talk to others and they mean something totally different by it. Right. Um, and so it's hard to, to put your finger on exactly what somebody's asking when they, when they ask the question. Right. You have to sort of dig for their own background on the word and what they mean by it before you can answer it for, for their context, yeah. which is not always the case for every doctrinal issue. Like if someone no. asks, are you Trinitarian? Like by and large, Pretty we're much. all talking about the same thing, <laughs> right? You know, at least right. in like evangelicalism, if a Christian comes to me and says, "Are you Trinitarian?" Like I know what he means; he knows what I mean when I say yes, yes, or or no to that question. That's not always the case as it relates to this theological buzzword, uh, no, right? Reformed, right? Yeah. And then you also think about the diversity of our congregation. Joe, is everyone in our church reformed? No, no. I mean, we have members who are who would disagree with us on our position in terms of reformed ish, I think is, is how we have described it. Um, and, and we make that clear up front that that is not a requirement for our members. That's not a requirement to be part of our, the congregation that worships on a regular basis. Um, but we do want to make sure that people know up front, what do we believe and how do we understand it? Because it's going to impact the way we do ministry. It's going to particularly impact the way we preach even especially certain passages, but every week uh, it's going to impact the way the God's word is exposited. Um, and so it, it matters, but we can agree to disagree. Um, but we also think it's beautiful and right and good. And so um, maybe do you want to explain a little more uh, about where we would land or maybe the, the options for where you could land in terms of what does reformed mean? Yeah. So I'll try to deal with this in... Uh, the way that I think is at the most popular level and the way that people talk about today. While it's, I think, good to look at history uh, it, and how people use the words in the past, it, it doesn't have as much practical relevance for today. So um, kind of one of the the broader uh, way that people tend to think about uh, Reformed is what some have called little r Reformed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, if you were to get 100 people in the room asking this question, I think the, the overwhelming majority of them are probably speaking of it in this way. And that it probably includes at least two things. Um, do you embrace the five solas of the Re- Reformation, which would be probably the most broad uh, in mm-hmm. the way people think about the idea of, of Reformed, uh, which are which are well, what you, you know, the five solas. Do you want them in yeah, Latin let's, or English? I want them particularly in Latin so that no one understands what we're – I'm not going to do them in Latin, but uh, Scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone. I'm missing one. Grace alone. Grace Joe alone. does not there believe in grace. Grace alone. That's a good song too. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So sometimes I, even we talked to, we've talked to pastors in the past where, um, that's what they mean by this, right? So I affirm all these, 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 these truths that came out of, uh, the reformation. Um, and, um, and so that's probably the broadest way that people might, might think about it. Um, the, uh, getting a little bit more narrow, those who also, also embrace what Calvinism or a Calvinistic mm-hmm. understanding of, of salvation, or if you've heard the acronym tulip. Yes. Flowers. Yes. That was my initial hangup when, when I was first introduced to reformed theology, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about that personally, kind of our own journeys Mm -hmm. on, as it relates to this, but that's a, that's a huge piece of this. And I think, you know, like I said, I think most people, when they're talking about, are you reformed? That's really what they're asking. Uh, They're asking, are you, are you Calvinist, right? Do you, do you embrace total depravity, unconditional (laughs) election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints? And, you know, certain people would disagree with the phrasing of some of those, but right. that's the idea. Um, yeah, it's funny that those, I mean, really Calvinist and Reformed has become synonymous, synonymous most interchangeable, people. but they didn't start that way at yeah. all. Unless yeah. you ask somebody who's like uh, hardcore Presbyterian or coming out of a more high church environment, they would be the first to be like, you are not Reformed right, uh, right. in any sort of definition of the word just because you embrace uh, the five points of Calvinism, they'd be like, that's a small piece of this, but that's not nearly what it means to be reformed. And that's why this sometimes gets hard to, to answer. Yeah. And that's what we would call like big R reformed, right? The, the viewpoint that you're referencing there. Correct. More high church. So what does that look like? So one of the ways I've heard it described, which I think is, is, is helpful. Uh, although some might disagree with it too, but I think it's, a, it's an easy framework to remember is under three C's. So, you know, bonus points for alliteration. Pastors were great at this. <laughs> so Calvinistic, uh, covenant theology, and confessional. Um, mm-hmm. So we've, you know, we talked about Calvinism briefly, uh, but that's a, that's a piece of it, right? That that right. you you do affirm these things, and that was also true in some ways uh, historically with like the the Canons of Dort, which really outlined some of that. Was one of the kind of confessions that you had to affirm to you know really call yourself that that label. The other idea is covenant theology. Like, do you embrace a covenantal understanding of the unfolding of Scripture as opposed to what many might say is called dispensational theology? And it really has to do with how you understand how the Bible is is put together. I mean, everyone agrees that the Bible includes covenants and that they're mm-hmm. a huge part of the unfolding plan of redemption. Um, but it's really just a, a, how do you understand the unfolding of the Scripture and particularly how do you understand the relationship between the Old and, and New Testament? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's branches of that. That's what's weird. So, like, I think initially, uh, you know, covenant theology was like a thing, and now it's kind of splintered, and there's kind of different versions of covenant theology. When you kind of really drill down and get into the specifics, there's some disagreements there. And there was back then, even amongst the particular Baptists, you know, as, as early as the 1600s that I'm aware of, um, there was some disagreements about some of the particulars of, of that piece of it. Yeah. And then the last piece you mentioned is confessional. And then I think we should probably go back and maybe explain where we would differ on these three things from big R reformed. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, confessional. Um, and usually what people are talking about, like going back to that idea of like some of the reformed confessions, some, um, would say that you would have to hold to sort of the three forms of unity, um, and the Westminster standards. So particularly if you're, you know, Presbyterian, that's how they would understand to be truly confessional means that you embrace 
those three forms of unity, which are the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and I think it's the Canons of Dort, uh, and then the Westminster Standards, which includes the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and the Shorter Catechism. So obviously all of our listeners will be totally familiar with all of, the, all of those. those things you that should you know just exactly. said. Everyone I'll be honest, I haven't even read all of them myself. <laughs> I, yeah, but I everyone them. else has them memorized. You're <laughs> really just lagging behind <laughs> the rest of us. I've skimmed them. Um, <laughs> what's nice is like what I have read in depth – we even as elders and considering like do where do we land on this, the uh, the Baptist you know, came, message. They, well, not that one. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, we do affirm that. Also, confession. There's a little bit older one. Yeah, uh, 1689. Yeah, there's one before that, but it, it sucked. And <laughs> and then the Westminster, you know, they they got together and it was like legit. And yeah. so we Baptists stole it. We were like, scrap the old one. Mm-hmm. We're going to make another one. We're going to use all the language that they use by and large, except the points we disagree. And we're going to, you know, make some edits. Right. And so it's the second London Baptist confession. 1689 is the most popular one. And, and that's solid in large part because we were standing on the shoulders of the, the Presby's. There you go. There but you go. we have gone through that one, uh, which is very similar to the mm-hmm. Westminster confession. And there's, you know, by and large, there's a lot in there that, that we would probably agree with, but there's definitely some scruples. And that's where we, as an elder team, you know, trying to figure out, is this, would this be helpful for us to adopt as sort of a, uh, something we affirm as mm-hmm. a, as a confession that could be helpful either for us internally as an elder team or for us as a church. How, how did that hit for you? I know. Cause I think you were around when we walked through that, uh, yeah. talk to us about that experience for you and, and maybe why you thought maybe we shouldn't. Uh, or wasn't necessary to say we're a confessional church and here's the confession we hold to. Yeah. So what I loved about it was that it connected me just personally, even more than at a church level, but with Christians from hundreds of years ago, which is a really cool and sort of unique experience that only happens when you read old things. (laughs) Um, And so that was really encouraging just personally um, to, to be able to remember, be reminded that, there are brothers and sisters who have walked faithfully for a long, long time and were doing this really well a long time before I existed. And um, so to, to just see the enduring nature of the church, even in just reading that, was was a really encouraging and beautiful thing to see. Um, so I loved that about it. I loved almost all of it in terms of theological agreement and alignment uh, would be able to affirm probably 95% of it. Um, there were a couple things that I think I, along with, I think the rest of us felt like we would maybe draw a line through some of these words and, or say this a little differently or just wouldn't say this at all. And I think for that reason, you know, if you want to, if you're going to adopt a confession, you're, you're saying this, I, I confess that I believe all these things. It feels weird to do that. And then be like, except other this, than this little part. This. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was sort of what at the end of the day made me feel like this probably wouldn't be a helpful thing for us to say we have adopted if we can't truly adopt it. But I do think it's really helpful to be clear with what we do believe and where we do land. And so I think we've tried to do that in as many other ways as we possibly can through the membership covenant and just the way we preach on Sundays and the way we communicate in general. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with that both like on a desire level. And I think seeing the the value of, of, 
embracing some sort of historic document mm-hmm. and saying like this is not you know we're not coming up with our own new thing but this is something that christians have believed for a long time um and there is there's plenty of creeds and confessions that we can gladly affirm mm-hmm. and that we do mm-hmm. um even with some of the affiliations that we currently have that are even older than the 1689 right. like, hey this is great we love the apostles creed and right. i see in creed and uh, some of these other documents um and I think the London Baptist Confession and others are still great tools um, that the church could benefit from greatly reading, studying, using for personal devotion. Um, in fact, right now, as a staff, we have yeah. recently decided that we're going to walk through the Heidelberg Catechism uh, together and and just just for our own spiritual formation and, mm-hmm. and theological clarity and kind of rehearsing some of these ancient truths that are still uh, beautiful and important uh, today. Uh, even though we might have certain points for like, ah, I disagree here in a minor way, by and large, uh, these are things that we, we gladly affirm. But some of the things that uh, we would have, like, you know, just to kind of give some examples of areas like, ah, I don't know, like for, for example, um, the, well, most of all the confessions hold to a really strict regulative principle of worship, which means essentially if if harps only uh, <laughs> if it is not prescribed in scripture it is sinful to do it mm-hmm. right in public worship so if you can't point me to a new testament passage that says you can use instrumentation um then you cannot use instrumentation right uh, or if you can't uh of course we're not big skit people or dramas people but mm-hmm. uh, you cannot do that not just like it's not wise or not best practices like it's sinful right. uh, and dangerous to do right. something like that and i don't know that we would draw a line that hard as it relates to to how we worship uh, the lord uh, mm. together we do feel like there are principles and that's the idea behind the normative principle which is the kind of opposing view and um, that normally these are the things that we must do mm-hmm. and and by and large there are other principles that we need to apply but we recognize that the application of that like might look different from church to church and from culture to culture and we feel like that's a that's a beautiful beautiful thing so that yeah. one i think about like the especially as it gets into like the Sabbath and, and the religious observance mm-hmm. of, of that day, they all draw a hard line. Like it is a hundred percent, not one in six, but it is Sunday now. Yep. Uh, and you must worship uh, on Sunday, uh, every Sunday, including vacation, the whole bit. If you don't, you are breaking the moral law of God, you're sinning uh, and not just go to a church, but cease from work, not just cease from work, but cease from, it says thinking your thoughts, mm. your words, you can't talk about work. You can't think about work, which is a hard thing to do. It is, uh, it is very And not hard. just work, but also recreation. So mm-hmm. anything that you think is – like you can't think about sports or talk about sports mm-hmm. or, or games or anything like that. But your yeah. whole day is supposed to be devoted You just have to, to find a bare patch of floor and lay <laughs> flat on your back and not move or think. I think – I feel like – It sounds a lot like what I tell Lucy when I put her in timeout. <laughs> I feel like I'd be trying so hard not to think about it that I would think about it twice as much. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, do not think about this. Right. So right. For, for those, and those are just two small examples of areas where like, ah, I think, you know, I get what they're getting at here. I, I think maybe we would have some minor disagreements with this and therefore maybe it's not the most helpful thing to do in terms of adopting it. But to Joe's point, 95% of it, if not more, we wholeheartedly embrace. So we're confessional-ish. Confessional-ish. There's a lot of ish. There's a lot of ish. Uh, As well. So we are confessional-ish. We are Calvinistic. For sure. Fully. And uh, what about covenant theology? That was the other box you mentioned. Do we check that box? I think it's it's definitely a half check. The the, the first part's there. Yes. Covenant theology-ish. Yeah. I think as an an elder team, uh, we have been 
um, very much influenced by guys like Steve, Stephen William, uh, and his books on mm-hmm. what he calls, um, progressive covenantalism, which is a form of covenant theology. Right. Um, and in some ways very similar to, um, some of the, the, the beliefs that really kind of of the guys who wrote the 1689, but, but, but it also has some differing, differing points there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, kind of closer the, to covenant cl- theology than dispensational for sure. A hundred percent. By law. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so in conclusion, so we've, we've sort of covered little R reformed and big R reformed. And so the, the answer to the question is vertical reformed. You said yes and no. So, so what is the conclusion? We are reformed ish. (laughs) 100. Just keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, what did that look like for you? Because I know not not uh, all of us. uh, I know myself included. You know, didn't grow up. You know, with these catechisms and with these confessions, we didn't grow up. Maybe even hearing the five points of Calvinism, and and so, what was your kind of first exposure to Reformed theology, and kind of give us some insight into what that journey looked like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, when you mentioned catechisms, it made me remember that the first time I saw that word, I was at least in college, and thought, what's a catechism? (laughs) (laughs) I had no concept of that at all. Uh, And now love it and would, you know, am doing it with my children and am looking forward to our church, you know, getting more resources like that into the hands of our people. Isn't that very Catholic-y though? I mean, how would you respond to that sort of objection? Yeah. Mm. Like, why are you doing all that Catholic-y type stuff? Like studying your Bible? <laughs> no, I, I understand the question. I think is is a very isn't it very traditional? Isn't it very high churchy kind of a feeling? Um, and I I can sympathize with that in a sense that it is very intentional and it is very serious and it shows a high level of value being placed on what you believe, um, which all sounds like really wonderful things to me. Um, so I think that's why I, you know, I don't know so much of the background in terms of the, um, sort of connotations that might be associated with a catechism or doing things like that. Um, but when you look at it at face value, it's impossible to miss just the beauty and the, um, really just essential nature that it should have to our lives and our family's lives, I think, and just any individual's lives. Um, so love catechisms would encourage our people to do those things. Um, but had no really category for it until college, which was also, uh, the time that I was first exposed to any kind of reformed theology that I am aware of. Um, so when I was in fifth grade, my family moved, uh, to a church, a Methodist church in Georgia. And were you sprinkled? Uh, I was sprinkled, not at that church. I was sprinkled at my grandparents' Presbyterian church. Oh my gosh. I got all the bases yeah. covered. So, so you're covered. Whatever yeah. kind of. you're wrong, he's good to go. Whatever kind of theology you want, I could fit in. Um, no, but so we went to a Methodist church, and um, generally, I, I can't speak for every Methodist everywhere, um, but generally, Methodists would agree with uh, Wesleyan theology, which is their preferred term to Arminian theology, which is the 
stance in opposition of Calvinism. So when I was going off to college, I had a great relationship with my music minister, whom I love and is a dear friend and discipled me very well in a lot of ways. But when when I was going off to college, he warned me. He took me out to lunch and warned me about those reformed people. He said, they're sneaky and they'll get you. And I was like, I could never fall for something like that. (laughs) And then um, my sophomore year of college, so I made it one whole year. And then my sophomore year, I got into a Bible study on the book of Romans with a bunch of guys that I was in fellowship of Christian athletes with. We were getting together on Tuesday nights studying the book of Romans, and I realized I had no category for what Paul said in Romans almost entirely, yeah, which was alarming as someone who loved Jesus and claimed to believe my Bible. I realized this is not consistent. I have no idea how to interpret this with the lens that I've been given and that I've been using in terms of understanding salvation. Um, and so that really was the beginning of a genuinely a two year battle in my mind and in my heart to come to terms with what felt very strange and foreign and really even counter to what I had been taught and what I had believed. And and in the end, um, I just had to accept that it was true because it makes sense and because it's what the Bible says. Um, it's really hard to read the Bible and not come away with that as the truth. Hmm. Um, not come away with God's sovereignty and salvation and the election of his people and their choosing, like his choosing of them. And that is a really beautiful thing. But if you've grown up thinking like, it's all me, like I did this and there's something about me that God, you know, wanted on his team. Like that was all the kind of stuff that I was wrestling through. And that's really appealing to your sense of self, like, cause it makes you a bigger deal and it makes you feel like there's something in here that's, you know, it's amazing. I'm just yeah, waiting for it just to come to out. Have you, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought it might be. Anyways, um, so so that was sort of the the battle that I was wrestling through for for a couple of years. And I'm praise God for the pastors and and peers, like just friends and brothers who just walked with me through that. I remember playing frisbee golf with one of the pastors of the church I was going to for hours one day. And all we did was talk about reformed theology. And I just, I'm sure he was so tired of me by the end, but he was patient and gracious and answered every question and answered every question again. Cause I often just got stuck on things. You know how I do. I got stuck on these same questions. I was just like, I can't get over this. Like, how does this work? Um, so how and- long have you been deceived now? <laughs> Your, your poor youth pastor would be so disappointed. Have you ever, have you ever called him to be I, like, hey, I want to tell you. I couldn't. I, could, I, I, I did sort of let him know, but I never straight up told him. You yeah, sort of let him know. Just like carrying tulips around to see if he notices. I told him I was uh, a part of the reform, Reformed University Fellowship mm. of Students. And so, Traitor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He still. That was the last time they ever spoke. And he's, no, we talk. We talked more after that. But he's a great guy. Um, but we do disagree on this. And I and I hope that one day he comes to the same realization because the reason, you know, it's predestined. We, it'll happen. It'll happen. <laughs> That's right. Oh, but man, the it is it is a beautiful thing to believe, uh, especially coming out of a an understanding of salvation that l- does leave it up to you and makes it all based on. Did, did you believe enough uh, at the end of the day to get to get to get into heaven? That is terrifying. Yeah. Um, 
and praise God that it is not the way he has designed it to work. Yeah. I want to circle back to some of that because, you know, I think you're hitting on – you've already mentioned a couple of things briefly, but like how this – this reform theology should impact and shape our, our life. And I think you're, you're hitting on some really good points there for me. I know, um, similar to you, I didn't grow up with any real exposure to this. I think the first exposure I had to reform theology, I was unaware that I was being exposed to it. I just kind of discovered like a lot of people did some of these big figures that I mentioned, like your John Pipers and, and your Devers and all these guys, I'm Kevin DeYoung and I'm listening to their sermons and, Man, it just was like a fire, you know, my bones, just like, man, I've never heard anyone preach the Bible like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But inevitably doing that, often we began to stumble across passages that I had had difficulty with and didn't understand. And um, but they did such a great job of showing like this is where this is coming from, that it, um, you know, made it easier to to digest. There was definitely still that part of was like, you know, letting go of the react, like the fact that like I had ultimately nothing to do with it, Mm -hmm. that ultimately God made the first move entirely, not just like 96% and I did the four. Um, It's not like Hitch. Yeah. (laughs) You lean in 90%, let them come to the It's not like (laughs) Kevin James. He's the best. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That movie's hilarious. I gotta rewatch that one. He gets all swollen up from, uh, Oh man, the dance scene when he does the Q-tip and throw it away. Oh, that gets me every time. Kevin James is the greatest. I think it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, anyway, maybe at another episode we talk about Calvin in particular, talk about kind of how I came kicking and screaming to that piece of it. But mm-hmm. um, once I kind of embraced it, uh, I think it was super comforting, kind of circling back to our earlier point, uh, when I began to, to, to find that this is actually – rooted in historic Christianity. And so like even discovering these older documents and older writings, um, essentially saying the same things and realizing, okay, this is not some new thing uh, that these guys have discovered, uh, but this is actually just a recovery of some of the ancient truths that we still need to believe and, and embrace. And they are for no doubt beautiful uh, in many ways. And I think that's something that a lot of people are surprised by when they hear that, that, that this is, that reformed theology is actually the less new of the ideas. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Cause most people just assume like the what they grew up with is what yeah. has always been. Even within the SBC by and large, you know, if you go back, uh, Baptists were Calvinistic, right? And you were the, the exception to the rule. If you weren't mm-hmm. uh, now it's, it's about the opposite. Maybe not. I think, like I said, it was just, the yeah. opposite for a time. I think it's probably heading back in that direction. Yes. Yeah. Right, um, which is which is interesting. But you're right. You, you come across people and they think this is some like wow, we're deviating from mm-hmm. from our roots. It's like actually we're recovering right. our roots um, right. and and something that we should have never left all all along. So, how, how does this reform theology impact and shape our life? How has it maybe your own life, or mm-hmm. or how should it at least? Primarily, the the biggest way it, it has reshaped my life is the assurance that it offers that that God offers um, that you just don't get from Arminian or, or Wesleyan or whatever you would call it theology. Um, just the recognition that this is not based on me. There is nothing that I can do to separate myself from God because he loved me first and he has chosen me and he has set me apart all of his own will. Um, that is, I think, the foundation for all the other ways that it has changed me and, and changed the way I think about things. Um, it gives you a, a level of peace and faith that I, I haven't 
had never experienced. Um, and, and that was, it, I didn't get there quickly. Like I mentioned, it took me a while to feel that way. Mm -hmm. But once I had the ability to understand how it all fit together and, and what scripture is actually saying, uh, I think that's the, the biggest thing I can think of is just that sort of rock solid foundation that doesn't waver because it's not based on me. It's based on the Lord. Yeah, I would echo a lot of things that you said. Another another point that I think is actually surprising to people is confidence not only in our own salvation, but confidence in the mission. Mm -hmm. um, because we realize that ultimately the salvation of this person that we're trying to evangelize uh, is is God's doing and not us, right? So it's not a matter of like, well, if I just say things right or I can you know, intellectually strong arm this person into the kingdom. Um, and so it kind of rests on me. Right. right. Uh, instead, it's like, no, this is God's God's work. I'm just a vessel and, mm -hmm. and he can use my imperfect, you know, um, little evangelism spiel here to actually <laughs> do saved. You know, his arm is not too short to actually do that very thing. Um, right. And I've said this before. I think uh, most Christians at their heart of hearts believe that to be true, whether they are consistent in that or not. Right. You think about. Um, someone that you love or someone that you have shared the gospel with and they've rejected it. You've said, no, I don't believe that. Uh, well, what do most Christians do? Well, they pray. And what do they pray? Well, God soften his heart. God open his eyes. They're essentially saying this person has made a willing choice to reject this offer of salvation. I'm asking you to change their, that. I'm asking right. you to overcome their stubborn will and and open up their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus so that they freely choose him. And and all we're saying is that God can and actually does do that. And right. that should embolden us in the mission, not keep us from it. Absolutely. Yeah. So we reject fatalism, you know, and that, that whole idea. And we'll talk about that at a later time. But um, but true understanding of Reformed theology should, should lead us into mission and lead us into prayer, not lead us away from it. I think that's a great note to end on. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Everyday Theology. If you have questions or would like to find out more about anything we've touched on today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find our contact information on our website at www.vertchurch.com. Until next week, let's keep following Jesus together. Jesus.